episode 28 of War in the Book of Mormon, part 6.3, Amalekiah's Eastern Campaign, Capture Bountiful, Battle Analysis, First Battle of Bountiful. This episode begins, as did the preceding episode, with where we ended episode 25, the dissension of the people of Morianton. The conclusion of the Moriantonite dispute and the resolution of the issues between the peoples of Morianton and Lehi coincided with the death of the Nephite chief judge, Nephiha, as we are told in Alma 5037. It was almost as if Amalickiah had a direct connection to the Nephite political developments. As the Nephites had their contentions that we discussed in episode 27 or part 6.2 with the kingmen, in came Amalickiah with his army. It was like it was planned. It is important to note that it had to have been planned, at least in some degree. Everything takes time, and in an era before modern telecommunications, before the printing press, and before motorized transportation, everything took much, much more time. It was impossible for Amalekiah to turn things on a dime or make things happen in a matter of days or probably even weeks. He had to motivate his people, prepare weapons and armor, gather his armies, and then march distances that, as we have previously discussed, took days or weeks to traverse. And all that was done so that he and his army arrived at the best possible time to have the greatest possible success. That is amazing. And that is why I say that it had to have been planned. It was too amazing to have been a coincidence. Planning or not, it was still amazing to have any level of coordinated effort in the ancient world. What we will discuss in this episode was the single most successful campaign against the Nephites to date. Within a single campaigning season, within a single calendar year, Amalickiah captured six supposedly defended and fortified Nephite cities and attacked toward the second most important city in Nephite strategy, the city Bountiful. Amalickiah enjoyed the distraction of his greatest opponent, and he had the opportunity to face a relatively new, and I suppose to be young and inexperienced commander to take Bountiful. The deceptions, diversions, and subversions were all ready for the campaign to begin as Amalickiah marched his wonderfully great army into the land of Zarahemla. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Overview of the Campaign I invite you to read the story of this campaign prior to listening to what follows. It is recorded in Alma chapter 51. I recommend that you read the entire chapter. There will be material on the kingmen in that chapter, but the chapter only takes about 10 to 15 minutes to read or listen to. The narrative in the Book of Mormon leaves Amalickiah for several years, from the time of his army's defeat outside of Noah until the report of his armies coming into the land on the eastern seashore of Nephite-held territories, it is clear that Amalickiah was a doer and not easily deterred. His efforts to gain a hegemonic empire, including the Lamanite and Nephite possessions, were without end of effort. 
his army was defeated in the 19th year of the reign of the judges, and his attack into the east was in the 25th year of the reign of the judges. I don't think it is simply supposition. I believe that there is an aspect of Amalekiah's personality that we know. He was a supremely ambitious man and a hard worker. These six years of unrecorded effort must have been filled with effort. That is why I say that this period represents a six-year commitment in terms of raising, developing, and preparing an army. Oh, by the way, Mormon says as much as well. The record in Alma chapter 51 verses 9 to 12 explains that, and I quote, But behold, this was a critical time for such contentions to be among the people of Nephi. For behold, Amalickiah had again stirred up the hearts of the people of the Lamanites against the people of the Nephites, and he was gathering together soldiers from all parts of his land and arming them and preparing for war with all diligence. For he had sworn to drink the blood of Moroni. But behold, we shall see that his promise which he made was rash, Nevertheless, he did prepare himself and his armies to come to battle against the Nephites. Now his armies were not so great as they had hitherto been, because of the many thousands who had been slain by the hand of the Nephites. But notwithstanding their great loss, Amalekai had gathered together a wonderfully great army, insomuch that he feared not to come down to the land of Zarahemla. Yea, even Amalickiah did himself come down at the head of the Lamanites, and it was in the twenty and fifth year of the reign of the judges, and it was at the same time that they had begun to settle the affairs of their contentions concerning the chief judge, Pahoran. Close quote. We will touch on various elements of this quote as we go through this episode. I want to emphasize two things here. One, I want to recognize the intentional emphasis that I placed on the phrase, preparing for war with all diligence. That is significant. Two, I want to point out Mormon's dry humor once again as he tells us about Amalickiah's oath to drink the blood of Moroni, and then he says that his promise was rash, kind of giving a spoiler alert that the blood drinking thing wasn't going to work out so well. Amalickiah led his army up the eastern seashore toward the northern end of the land of Zarahemla at Bountiful, taking city after city. Mormon's comment of preparing for war with all diligence needs to be read in light of the preparations previously discussed in episode 21, or part 5.2 of this series. This preparation must have included things like weapons, armor, and possibly some semblance of training. This was a Lamanite army that was created with serious consideration to reverse the nearly unbroken string of failures. Amalickiah was so serious that he led the army personally. This was a real investment. Amalickiah would not have had the luxury of blaming any defeat on someone else. He must win, or he was to lose his position as king of the Lamanites. Geographical Setting General In this episode, I am dividing many of my comments into two parts. In this case, I want to talk first about the general geography of the theater of war, the Eastern Theater, and then I will address what I believe to be the area associated most directly with the First Battle of Bountiful. This is a part of this episode that is dominated by supposition. I don't know what these lands looked like in reality. I have imagined or supposed a sketch of the area, but it could be very wrong. 
Regardless, I'm sticking with that visualization and will describe the geography accordingly. That said, we do know things about the geography. We know that the Lamanites were in the south, that Bountiful was in the north, and that there was some seashore on the east. The order of march for Amalekiah and his army started with an attack on Moroni, assumed to be the southernmost city and the one closest to the Lamanite lands. We are told in Alma 51.22 that Moroni was by the seashore. There is obviously a poetic element for Amalekiah in taking a city named after his opposing commander. Amalekiah didn't drink Moroni's blood, but he did take his city. We are further told in Alma 51.25 that Amalekiah kept his army down by the seashore rather than letting them go up to battle against the city of Nephiha, which must have been inland. I want to quote a couple of verses here to identify something that may be a mistake in Moroni's engraving. I quote from Alma chapter 51 verses 25 and 26. But it came to pass that Amalekiah would not suffer the Lamanites to go against the city of Nephiha to battle, but kept them down by the seashore, leaving men in every city to maintain and defend it. And thus he went on, taking possession of many cities, the city of Nephiha, the city of Lehi, and the city of Morianton, and the city of Omner, and the city of Gid, and the city of Mulek, all of which were on the east borders by the seashore. Close quote. Mormon told us that Amalekiah didn't go against Nephiha, and then in the next verse he said that he did. I don't understand this issue, and because it doesn't make sense, I am assuming that I am missing something. Here is why I see a problem. We are told in Alma chapter 59, verses 7 and 8, that Nephiha was captured by the Lamanites, and its capture was a big deal in generating the exchange in letters between Moroni and Pahoran. Clearly, Nephiha was not in the hands of the Lamanites. From the 25th year of the reign of the judges until that recording in chapter 59 in the 30th year of the reign of the judges. Here are my thoughts on how to resolve this issue. 1. It was simply a recording mistake on Mormon's part. I have written enough to know that such things happen. Mormon may have been thinking of the later loss of the city when he engraved this. 2. There were two cities of Nephiha. There is another issue like this with a city named Aaron as there seems to be two of them. My family and I used to live in Vermont, in the United States, and while we lived there, we would joke that the state must have had a quota on the amount of different town names that they could have, as most places seemed to be named something like Northfield, Northfield Center, and West Northfield. It is possible that there was a Nephiha, and an East Nephiha, and that the Lamanites didn't attack Nephiha, but did attack East Nephiha. That is possible, but I have not counted an attack on Nephiha in my roll-ups of battles, because I think it is unlikely. 3. Mormon meant to say the land of Nephiha instead of the city, as maybe the Lamanites captured parts of the adjoining lands that belonged to the people of Nephiha. Regardless of what did or didn't happen with Nephiha, Amalekiah continued to take cities, some of whose locations we have previously discussed, like Lehi and Morianton. So geographically speaking, the Nephite cities were arranged from south to north in this order, Moroni, Lehi, Morianton, Omner, Gid, Mulek, and Bountiful. Mormon places emphasis on the seashore, 
Let me explain one reason why this might be so. Amalekiah was ambitious, but he was also smart and skilled. He was penetrating Nephite lands and heading for Bountiful, but he wanted to mitigate his risk. In a later episode, we will discuss the actions of a Lamanite chief captain named Coriantumr, who plunged his army straight for Zarahemla, and then he marched toward Bountiful through the center of the Nephite lands. That story is recorded in Helaman chapter 1. Coriantumr was stopped and then surrounded, and his army was destroyed. Amalekiah was smarter than to plunge his army into the heart of the enemy. He wanted to maintain a protected flank. With the seashore on his right, Amalekiah knew that he couldn't be attacked from that direction. He only needed to worry about his front and his left. Specific to the First Battle of Bountiful The terrain seems to be a little more complicated as Amalekiah attacked from Mulek toward Bountiful. I am supposing that this is an area of wilderness and that Bountiful was oriented with some sort of protection on one or more side. I show it being along an inlet or waterway. I imagine this to be the outlet of the river Sidon as it reached the sea. This is pure imagination on my part, with no scriptural support. The existence of the wilderness is significant in how I suppose the first battle of Bountiful to happen. Time of Year By the time the Lamanite armies fight Teancum outside Bountiful, it is New Year's Eve. The beginning of the campaign is unspecified in the record other than in context as beginning after the end of the contention over the voice of the people as we are told in Alma 51.12. The campaign may have begun early in the year and lasted many months, or it may have all happened within one or two months. There is a reference in Alma 51.33 to the heat of the day during the Battle of Bountiful, meaning that the weather had some impact on the fighting. As a note, this is one of the few references to temperature in the entire Book of Mormon story. Who was involved? In this campaign, we have an attacking Lamanite army and what I suppose to be two different Nephite forces. We have Nephite garrisons that protected the cities and the fortifications associated with the cities, and we have the field army commanded by Teancum and seemingly associated with the city Bountiful. I will address each of these forces in this order. Lamanite forces. We are told about Amalekiah's army in Alma 51.11, quote, Now his armies were not so great as they had hitherto been because of the many thousands who had been slain by the hand of the Nephites, But notwithstanding their great loss, Amalickiah had gathered together a wonderfully great army, insomuch that he feared not to come down to the land of Zarahemla. This is not the largest Lamanite army, but it is still wonderfully great. What does wonderfully great mean? I think that we should think of Amalickiah's army as larger than the force sent against Ammonihah and Noah, which I estimated as being between 6,000 to 10,000, and larger than that used in the Battle of Manti, which I estimated at being between 9,000 to 12,000. It wasn't as large as the largest army to come down against the Nephites at the tremendous Battle of the Wilderness, which I estimated as 40,000 to 80,000. A rough guess places the army between 12,000 and 25,000 strong. The army would need to be large if Amalickiah planned to take and hold Nephite cities, as the very act of the advance weakened 
his army. Amalekiah needed an army big enough to take Bountiful that began at almost twice that size. I think that the army that departed Mulek for Bountiful was about 6,000 to 12,000 strong. The Lamanite army probably wasn't always getting weaker as it moved through Nephite lands. There were probably kingmen or kingmen-adjacent people in some of these cities. One might be safe in supposing that some or many of the people of Morianton might have been happy to assist Amalekiah against the Nephites in general and Teancum in specific. We don't know this as Mormon gives no details on Nephite dissenters during this campaign. All of this said, the Lamanite army was getting weaker. Each city needed some force left behind to manage and govern the city. This wasn't necessarily a conquering army that killed everyone and raised the cities to the ground. We are told in Alma 51.24 that Nephites fled the city of Moroni to go to Nephiha and Lehi. This might imply that the Lamanites drove all of the Nephites out of the cities. That might have been true for the city of Moroni because it was a relatively new frontier town created to guard against a Lamanite attack. It is also possible that the Lamanites wanted Nephites to stay and continue to work and produce. We know that later in this story, as the Nephites retake these same cities, they interact with the Nephite population still in the cities. This is stated for the city of Gid, where the Nephite men, women, and children are called prisoners in Alma 55, verses 2 and 7, and can be inferred for other cities as well. I imagine, and I emphasize this to be my imagination, that Amalickiah didn't want to simply slaughter Nephites. He wanted to rule them. That means that he either coerced or compelled them to continue to live and work in the cities and lands recently conquered and controlled by the Lamanites. If I am right, that means he needed to always leave a force to provide the coercion and compellence necessary. I estimate that he left between 500 to 1,000 warriors per city. That, along with the losses incurred from taking the cities, provided the greatest reduction of the attacking Lamanite army. Nephite Garrisons We are not told how many Nephites guarded a city. We are told in Alma 51.23 the following, And it came to pass that the Nephites were not sufficiently strong in the city of Moroni. Therefore Amalickiah did drive them, slaying many. And it came to pass that Amalickiah took possession of the city, yea, possession of all their fortifications, close quote. The Nephites were not sufficiently strong, but they were strong. This means to me that the Nephite garrison commander had a force that was smaller than a somewhat standard Nephite army of 2,000. I'm throwing out a guess of between 500 to 1,000 fighters in each city. I believe that the city Moroni must have had the largest such garrison as it was the closest to the Lamanites and constructed for the purpose of preventing a Lamanite attack to move beyond it. Nephite Field Army Commanded by Teancum We are not told about the size of Teancum's army. We are just told about its quality, or rather the quality of the warriors included in it. For the sake of this episode, I suggest that Teancum commanded a standard Nephite army of that time of about 2,000 warriors. Key leaders in the battle, Lamanite forces. Amalickiah, king of the Lamanites. Amalickiah is one of the most described and discussed individuals in the entire Book of Mormon. 
He is, without question, the most detailed bad guy character in the record. And for that reason, that is why I describe him as the Satan archetype. He was ambitious, cunning, charismatic, smart, hardworking, and successful. He did things that no other Nephite dissenter had done. He became king of the Lamanites. He did things that no other Lamanite king or commander had done. He captured Nephite cities. Amalickiah is worth study because he informs us of the efforts and energies directed against those who seek to live the gospel of Jesus Christ or any similar life of virtue. He previously sent an army to attack the Nephites, and that army was destroyed. Now he was leading the army personally. This was a gamble that he was taking. The army's success was directly his success, and any failure would be his failure. I invite you to listen to episode 24, or part 5.5, for a longer discussion on Amalickiah and his importance. Nephite Forces We do not know about any Nephite commander defending the Nephite cities until Amalickiah attacks toward Bountiful and he runs into the army of Teancum. Teancum, commander of the Nephite army. We are introduced to Teancum in Alma chapter 50 and we discussed him in episode 25 or part 5.6 of this series. He was a man of action who was audacious and decisive. He was clearly a man who understood the tribal nature of the Nephite-Lamanite conflicts and the importance of a charismatic leader to sustaining revolution. His decisive actions against Morianton, Amalickiah, and Amaron brought about the end of two wars and a major campaign in another war. By the way, that is this campaign. Despite this, we have little knowledge whether Teancum acted rashly out of a fiery temper, or he was cool and calculating and saw the risk as reasonable to achieve the desired end of the conflicts. Often, I have heard Teancum described as acting rashly rather than intelligently. Given the limited information and Mormon and Moroni's praise of him, I recommend a more measured assessment. Regardless of your or my personal opinion, the fighting in this episode was Teancum's most important personal command. If he didn't win against Amalickiah, then Bountiful would have fallen, and who knows what would have happened in the story. His command decision, both on the battlefield and during the night of the battle, generated tactical and operational success by securing Bountiful and stopping a powerful army and killing a very capable opposing commander. Grand and Theater Context Amalickiah changed Lamanite strategic thinking. One can debate when this change happened. Was it associated with the armies he sent to attack Ammonihah and Noah? Or did it begin here? Regardless, the change happened. What did he change? No longer were the Lamanites conducting raids to steal material or people with the intent of returning to Lamanite lands. This new strategy was one of conquest. These were attacks to take and keep Nephite cities and turn them into Lamanite cities, or at least Lamanite-controlled cities. This was a new and an important change in thought that will be manifest from here forward as Lamanites attacked Nephites. In the previous episode, 
there was a great deal of supposition about Amalekiah's connections and political positioning amongst the Nephites. It is my opinion that Amalekiah, like Moroni, maintained spy networks throughout the lands of his opponent. The spies of Amalekiah were interested in doing more than simply reporting. They were also subverting the Nephite government in Zarahemla and in every city possible. The kingmen weren't simply in one place. Amalekiah probably associated his attack in the 25th year of the reign of the judges with the gathering of the voice of the people on the issue of kings versus chief judge. This meant the Nephites were at their most disunited as Amalekiah attacked. Moroni's decision to take his army first against the kingmen meant that Amalekiah was only fighting against the various garrison forces in each city as he attacked. With the success of each attack, Amalekiah built a wave of fear and shock that flowed through the Nephite communities. This appears to be similar to the fear waves that preceded Assyrian or even Roman attacks in the ancient Near East. The word of mouth from one city to the next was transferred and the people fled in ever-increasing numbers. I believe that Amalekiah had a two-pronged approach to this war by the time we are at the 25th year of the reign of the judges. He had identified a weak point in the Nephites in that he thought he could run the east seashore and take Bountiful and by doing so surround the Nephites with Lamanites on the south and the north. There had to be some geographic understanding that I don't have that accomplishing this would provide a significant position of advantage. Or there may solely have been a poetic point of the criticality of avoiding being surrounded. I will address that in discussing lessons learned. I suppose that Amalekiah already intended for a second army, possibly commanded by himself, to then attack the south and western Nephite lands oriented on capturing Zarahemla in coordination with the kingmen. What follows is a discussion on the first part of this two-part master plan. Operational Context First Battle of Moroni The first attack was against the city of Moroni. This was a city built at the far extreme of the Nephite line of defense, along the seashore and adjacent to the wilderness separating the Lamanites and Nephites. Literally, the city of Moroni was part of the first line of defense. The position, being the most exposed and vulnerable, was given the name of the Nephite commander, possibly to encourage those living and stationed there. Amalekiah took this city by driving the Nephite defenders and slaying many, as read from Alma 51.23. By using the verbs driving and slaying, it seems that Mormon wants us to know that this city didn't fall to subterfuge or some internal dissent. It is unclear whether this driving was done through an actual assault of the city walls or whether Amalekiah fought the defenders in an open field battle. Based on the past histories of both Amalekiah and Moroni, it is safe to assume that they both learned from the previous encounter of their respective armies at Noah in the 19th year of the reign of the judges. Having so learned, the Nephites would have sought to use the existing and recently reinforced defenses to their advantage, just as Lehi did at Noah. The Lamanite armies, under the personal command of Amalickiah, probably assaulted the city from multiple locations simultaneously to avoid the catastrophe that occurred when the Lamanites focused their efforts on the place of entrance. 
if I am right in that Amalekiah used the intervening five to six years to train his army, this successful capture of a Nephite city, the first against a fortified Nephite city, would have inspired the Lamanite warriors and confirmed Amalekiah's genius using the seashore. The specific effort of the Lamanite armies was directed along the coast. I talked about this with respect to the geography of the fighting. I want to remind the listener that there was an operational purpose in that this allowed Amalekiah to focus his force in orientation and possibly there was a terrain or vegetation benefit along the seashore that might have allowed Amalekiah to maintain a formation advantage both on the march and in the case of any open field battle that might have occurred. Capturing Cities The Nephites did not remain passively unaware of the attacks. They gathered together in their strongholds as the Lamanites advanced, as we are told in Alma 51:24. Lehi was the next city to be captured, followed in succession by Morianton, Omner, Gid, and Mulek. All of these cities were along the seashore and on the same avenue of approach for the Lamanite army. Again, it is unclear how the cities were captured, though it is probable that Amalickiah had developed an assault technique that the Lamanites could execute with little significant engineering or logistical support. By that I mean that the Lamanites might have developed an ability to rapidly surround and attack a city by going over, tearing down, or penetrating the Nephite fortifications. I suppose, though we don't have it in the record, that Amalickiah used subversion to weaken the will of those defending the cities. This was a common and dominant tactic used by ancient conquering armies, as I have mentioned in previous episodes. As a reminder, the Assyrian army regularly used terror to cause cities to capitulate, as we illuminated in episode 4 or part 1.3 of this series. The ancient Greeks were not very good at taking walled cities and regularly relied on someone or some faction inside the city turning things over to the attacking force. Technical context. I have already addressed several technical issues. I believe that there are nine relevant to this discussion. I will point them all out and then focus on the ones that are new to our discussion. 1. The taking of cities. 2. The use of spies. 3. The use of the seashore to protect a flank. 4. Training. Did the Lamanites conduct training on capturing cities prior to doing so? If so, this was a change in behavior and marks a significant moment for the people of the Book of Mormon. Additionally, we are told in Alma 51.31 that Teancum's warriors had skill of war. We aren't told what that meant, but I assume that it meant proficiency with their weapons at a minimum, and possibly ability to conduct tactical actions as an army in the sense of different parts moving independent of other parts, rather than fighting as a single mass. We will discuss one way that might have been demonstrated in this battle, an ambush. 5. Armor There is no mention of armor at all for either side. That may be because Mormon had already addressed it, and it was no longer a novel thing. I believe we should assume that both sides were equivalently armored during the rest of the Amalekiahite War. 6. Javelin. Javelin is a weapon that oftentimes can be confused with a spear. It is usually a hurled spear-like weapon, though some historic references make it seem like a held thrusting weapon. In the Book of Mormon, it only appears three times, 
The first is in a list of Nephite weapons given in Jerem chapter 1, verse 8, and the other two are both in connection with Teancum. The clarification that the word javelin does refer to a thrown shaft with a tip designed for penetration is in the two stories of Teancum's assassinations of the Lamanite kings in Alma 51, verse 34, and Alma 62, verse 36. 7. March Distances I have talked about march distances before and will do so here and in the future. This is an important point to keep in mind. The modern world allows us to imagine wide thoroughfares that allow volumes of traffic to move through a given space in a short time. That was not true in the ancient world. Most paths were only that. The Romans and other major civilizations are rightly admired for their civil engineering prowess that built roads that armies could march along. Absent such effort, and the Book of Mormon gives little emphasis to assume such effort, then armies marched on relatively narrow paths where maybe you could march two to four abreast. The Lamanite armies did not seem to fight in a formation. They seemed to have fought in a mass, as was common for a great many tribal cultures throughout history. If so, that probably means that they didn't enjoy significant march discipline either. What that means is that an army of six to 12,000 marching along a moderately wide path, allowing four abreast, would stretch anywhere from 1,500 to 3,000 meters from front to back, or about one to two miles. If moving at a normal walking speed, it would take this sized army anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour to cross a given point. If the trails were narrower, or the army less disciplined and more spread out, then you could easily double the times and distances suggested here. This will matter when we talk about the fighting with Teancum. 8. Ambush An ambush is an unexpected attack by a stationary force against a moving force. Surprise is inherent in an ambush. I imagine that the only way that Teancum could effectively drive off a force that was anywhere from three to six times his army's size was through some form of ambush. An army spread out, as described in point seven that I just talked about, would be a ripe target for an ambush. Nine, meeting engagement. This is when two forces not prepared for battle meet and a battle commences. Tactical events First Battle of Bountiful. One can imagine that this battle took place in a single day. I further believe that it took place under the canopy of a humid and hot forest, in the wilderness, after a long and successful campaign for the Lamanites. I want to emphasize this last point first. The Lamanites had conquered at least six Nephite cities. They had taken Nephite fortifications. They had Nephite prisoners. They probably had Nephites working for them to provide them food and support. This was the first time in Lamanite history that such a thing was true. Always remember that the Lamanite armies, and probably most of the Nephites as well, were not trained and professional soldiers. These were tribal fighters and warriors who were taken from homes and families and marched days and weeks from what they knew. Neither the Nephites nor the Lamanites were the ancient Roman army. Discipline was not common. As these fighters walked, 
I emphasize walked as they were not marching like the Soviet army in some May Day parade toward Bountiful, they probably expected to have another win as they had been enjoying for weeks at least and probably months. Why wouldn't it continue now? What happened is recorded in Alma chapter 51 verses 28 to 32. Quote, And it came to pass that they marched to the borders of the land Bountiful, driving the Nephites before them and slaying many. But it came to pass that they were met by Teancum, who had slain Morianton and had headed his people in his flight. And it came to pass that he headed Amalickiah also, as he was marching forth with his numerous army, that he might take possession of the land bountiful, and also the land northward. But behold, he met with a disappointment by being repulsed by Teancum and his men, for they were great warriors, for every man of Teancum did exceed the Lamanites in their strength and in their skill of war, insomuch that they did gain advantage over the Lamanites. And it came to pass that they did harass them, insomuch that they did slay them even until it was dark. And it came to pass that Teancum and his men did pitch their tents in the borders of the land bountiful, and Amalickiah did pitch his tents in the borders on the beach by the seashore, and after this manner were they driven. Close quote. The idea of the Lamanites moving along a relatively restricted corridor close to the seashore is enhanced by the image of Teancum and his single Nephite army meeting and stopping the Lamanites. Teancum once again headed his opponent and brought him to battle. The text leaves open the possibility that Teancum surprised Amalickiah as it states, quote, they were met by Teancum, close quote, and later that Teancum's army, quote, did harass them, close quote. A meeting engagement between two moving forces or even an ambush would give credence to why a single Nephite army could stop the massed, though somewhat dissipated, strength of the Lamanites. It is further possible that the battle progressed from either an ambush or a meeting engagement between two armies on the march. The Lamanite army was almost certainly spread out, as I previously described. That means Teancum would only be fighting a portion of the Lamanite army, if Teancum was set in an ambush, or even if he had warning from spies of the approach, he would have had the advantage of massing his estimated 2,000 against a smaller or maybe equal number of the Lamanites at the front, but more Lamanites would be able to come up and support the forces initially engaged. Teancum repulses the Lamanites. The men of Teancum were the cream of the Nephite military might, Quote, they were great warriors, for every man of Teancum did exceed the Lamanites in their strength and in their skill of war. Close quote. This mastery allowed Teancum's army to gain the advantage. Despite having the advantage, the battle lasted until dark. It must have been a chaotic and wild affair as the Lamanites were struggling to gain an understanding of what was happening and the Nephites were trying to completely defeat an army that seemed to be throwing more and more fresh forces at them. There is an implied emphasis in this story of endurance. As I have said, the Lamanites were never the Roman army. They were not fighting in disciplined ranks or formations. Amalekai was probably throwing one subordinate group after another at the Nephites to stop their advance and to gain some control of this battle. It should be expected that Amalickiah never really understood what was happening as he tried to comprehend what was reported to him. There were certainly attempts to flank and to gain small pieces of ground that would give even the smallest possible advantage to the possessor. 
The Lamanites failed to achieve any appreciable gains, and they were thrown back to the seashore where they set their camp. The fact that the battle lasted until nightfall would provide great insight as to how Tiancum was able to penetrate the camp's security so easily with his servant. It is almost certain that the Lamanites outnumbered the Nephites by a significant margin even after all of the fighting, and this knowledge must have played a significant part in Tiancum's thought process. He probably felt that his army would not be able to fight the Lamanites on open ground without the element of surprise that he had enjoyed on the first encounter and that he needed to do something significant before what he must have expected to be another battle on the following day. His experience with the death of Morianton, where that was probably a major reason for the capitulation of the Moriantonites, had to have also affected his planning. Tiancum killed Amalickiah in his tent, withdrew back to his army, and had them prepare for immediate battle. I quote from the text in Alma 51, verses 33 to 36. And it came to pass that when the night had come, Tiancum and his servants stole forth and went out by night and went into the camp of Amalickiah. And behold, sleep had overpowered them because of their much fatigue, which was caused by the labors and heat of the day. And it came to pass that Teancum stole privily into the tent of the king and put a javelin to his heart, and he did cause the death of the king immediately that he did not awake his servants. And he returned again privily to his own camp, and behold, his men were asleep, and he awoke them and told them all the things that he had done. And he caused that his army should stand in readiness, lest the Lamanites had awakened and should come upon them." The twofold shock for the Lamanite army of waking on New Year's Day and finding their king and commander mysteriously murdered in his tent and the Nephite army ready for battle shocked the warriors out of their original plans and forced them to retreat to Mulek, the last city conquered on their route of march, as we are told in Alma chapter 52, verses 1 and 2. Battlefield Leadership the only direct discussion in this story is that of Tiancum, who again was a direct leader who faced a problem and led from the front. Tiancum seemed to always do this, and he serves as a fabulous example of the importance of personal example in leading others. Tiancum re-emphasized his fundamental character of attacking the opposing leader. For the second time, success in defeating the enemy leader rectifies an existential problem. Tiancum's army survived and Bountiful was secured. Significance Amaron, Amalickiah's brother, was appointed king, probably by the army, and he gave some initial instructions to a commander named Jacob, who was a Zoramite, and then Amaron returned to the land of Nephi to inform his brother's widow of the death of her husband. Our next episode tells more of the tale of Amaron. It is important to note here that Amron left the Eastern Theater at the beginning of the 26th year of the reign of the judges and did not return to that theater of war until his plans in the West failed and the East was his only remaining theater of operations against the Nephites in the 30th year of the reign of the judges. Tiancum was left on his own in Bountiful by Moroni, who was still fighting against the kingmen and Tiancum's assessment was that he did not have sufficient strength to defeat the Lamanites in their recently acquired fortresses, as we are told in Alma 52.5. He therefore set his warriors to improving defenses. 
Moroni sent a letter from the West providing instructions. In that letter, Moroni emphasizes the Nephites' strategic objective. I quote in part from Alma 52.9, Fortify the land bountiful and secure the narrow pass which led into the land northward, lest the Lamanites should obtain that point and should have power to harass them on every side. Close quote. Moroni also gave latitude for Tiancum to execute his instructions with innovation and vision. Tiancum was unable to conduct any additional operations based on his numerical inferiority until Moroni arrived in the 27th year of the reign of the judges. I want to emphasize this last point made in discussing leadership. If my numbers are right with respect to army size, and I admit that they may not be, then this battle outside Bountiful was an existential crisis. If Tiancum had remained in Bountiful and simply defended the city from the fortifications, then Bountiful would have been effectively cut off from the rest of the Nephites, even if the city hadn't fallen. By fighting the Lamanites on the way to Bountiful and forcing the enemy to stop at Mulek and a non-king to be placed in command there meant that the Eastern Theater was secure from any further existential problems. Amron did not seem to have the same drive and energy as Amalickiah. He was a successful battlefield commander, and he seemed to generate sufficient loyalty and energy on the part of his subordinate commanders. But he was not Amalickiah, the man who made himself king through force of will and unending personal energy. This meant that the tone of the fighting changed from decisive bold actions to holding captured cities. I believe, as we will discuss in the next episode, that Amron only took advantage of the groundwork laid by his brother, and he didn't really create any additional opportunities for success. In this sense, the assassination of Amalickiah effectively ended the existential threat for the Nephites as a whole, and not just in this theater. Lessons Learned Military The Eastern Campaign that culminated in the First Battle of Bountiful presents one of the most important connected series of battles described in the Book of Mormon. What we see is success upon success with a single failure experienced by Amalickiah and his army. This brings up one of the most profound questions of military history and strategy. How do you consolidate gains? In this case, Amalickiah seemed to be consolidating gains. He had a series of tactical wins But because he couldn't seal the deal in the last battle, which led to his assassination, that ended the phenomenal success with his own death. Tiancum, however, consolidated a tactical win into an operational victory through a tremendously effective technical act of assassination. Identification Amalickiah understood his opponent. He seemingly knew that Moroni was committed elsewhere, and he had the freedom to assume risk and accomplish the previously impossible. I am assuming that Tiancum knew the route of march of the Lamanite army and was therefore able to place his force in a critical location at the crucial time. More importantly, Tiancum found the tent of the king at a crucial moment. Both sides knew what was necessary to achieve success. Spies work, whether those spies are a form of tactical reconnaissance or they provide strategic shaping and subversion. Isolation. Amalickiah had the benefit of Moroni fighting the kingmen. 
That isolated the Eastern Theater in general and Tiancum in specific. Tiancum was able to effectively isolate Amalekiah from his army by attacking at night and in the privacy of his tent. In this case, the isolation was made possible through successful identification. Suppression. Tiancum is the one who was most effective with regards to suppression. He achieved suppression through the excellence of his warriors. They forced the enemy to react to such a degree that outside assistance was not possible or beneficial. These actions combined with the death of Amalekiah led Amron to cease pursuing the capture of Bountiful. He probably could have taken it, but the actions of Tiancum and his soldiers suppressed Amron's creativity and risk-taking. A benefit of consolidating gains is suppression of enemy possibilities. Maneuver. Tiancum's actions to kill Amalekiah in such a dramatic fashion achieved an operational level position of advantage. Destruction. The assassination destroyed Amron's will to pursue the campaign. It has been suggested by others that the fact that the killing happened on New Year's Eve carried an additional emotional weight for a superstitious people. If so, this is another example of a psychological and sociological position of advantage that crushed an opponent's will. Action has power. Moving quickly, surrounding your opponent, and placing that opponent on the horns of a dilemma are ways to break the will of an opponent. Both Amalekiah and Tiancum were men of action, almost to the extreme of that phrase, and it was their action that led to success. One needs to act to achieve. Lessons learned, spiritual. What is to be learned from the details of this campaign and these battles? I hope that the following lessons are useful. I want to emphasize that these are some lessons that I have derived, and they are not a comprehensive list of all possible lessons or even those most applicable for you in your life as you listen to this. In this case, many of these lessons are overlapping. 1. Protect your flank. This will also be part of the fourth lesson. Don't go into a position completely exposed. Find a way to secure some part of the risk. The point here is to have something upon which you can rely, an unassailable flank. Christians hope in Jesus Christ to be that rock. We usually term that as a foundation upon which to build, but he is also a rock upon which to lean or to secure oneself. 2. Surround the enemy. Usually, this lesson comes from the good guys, but it is, in this case, demonstrated by the bad guys. Regardless of the source of the example, the teaching is the same. If I want to achieve something, it is best if I attack the problem from multiple angles simultaneously. That requires a variety of skills and abilities on my part. I need to know, following the example in this story, how to go over and through and under the obstacles. 3. Exceeding Strength and Skill Tiancum's warriors were incomparable. Being righteous gives strength. It makes you and I powerful in dealing with our problems. I believe that this is true both metaphorically and literally. A righteous warrior is always stronger than an unrighteous warrior. This is one of the single most important points from this story. No one can beat a properly armored, 
armed, and skilled soldier of Christ. The world likes to attack this truth, but the world is wrong. I want to use an example from fiction and film to illuminate my point. In the Lord of the Rings books, written by J.R.R. Tolkien, Aragorn is invincible in single combat, and nearly so even when outnumbered. This is because he is righteous. Even Boromir, who was corrupted by the influence of the ring, was able to destroy orcs by the dozens because he was mostly pure. In the films of the same books, directed by Peter Jackson, there are powerful orcs who are able to stand against these righteous, or mostly righteous, warriors and harm them and even kill them. Accepting the Peter Jackson view of the world can lead one to question the value of righteousness. Why seek it if there is no empowerment? Such thinking is in violation of the poetic truth that Tolkien expressed. It is, much more importantly, in violation of the spiritual metaphorical truth expressed through the brief story of Tiancum and his warriors. 4. Take a Companion Tiancum will twice assassinate a Lamanite king with a javelin. The second time, he will be killed. The difference between the two is expressed in Alma 51.33. The first time Tiancum went with his servant. There was no servant the second time around. If you are going to do that which is spiritually difficult, take a companion. There is a reason why missionaries work in a companionship. I am a huge fan of a line from the movie My Fair Lady. Henry Higgins is talking to Eliza Doolittle, and the line goes like this, quote, Eliza, you're magnificent. Five minutes ago, you were a millstone around my neck, and now you're a tower of strength, a consort battleship. I like you this way, close quote. What is a consort battleship? It is a battleship of equal capability with equal guns equal protection, and that observes and engages along complementary areas. Together, the two battleships work to protect each other and to accomplish their collective mission. Every companionship, whether in friendship or marriage, ought to strive for such a metaphorical reality. You want a companion who can bring to bear what you can and also is facilitating your success as you facilitate his or hers. I imagine that it was just this sort of companion that accompanied Tiancum. 5. Understand your situation. Live within your means. Malachiah accomplished much until he extended beyond his means. That may have been extending beyond the discipline of his warriors. It doesn't matter in what way, but Amalekiah extended beyond his means, and in so doing he assumed more risk than he was able to manage, and he was defeated and turned back in battle. He may have recovered from this setback if he had protected himself at night. In the light of a new day, he may have won round two of the battle, but because he overextended in discipline, his army couldn't secure his camp. At the point of overextension is the point where you are weakest. Be conscious of when, where, and how you are overextending so that you can prepare yourself for attacks that may occur. It is in overextension that you want that consort battleship. Tiancum was overextended inside the Lamanite camp, but his servant facilitated his success. Conclusion Amalekiah accomplished more than any Nephite dissenter 
sensed the consolidation of the Nephites and Mulekites in the land of Zarahemla. He prepared the environment through subversion, and he took advantage of his preparations. The only reason that he was not able to accomplish all that he sought out to do was the interposition of a warrior leader and his army of skilled warriors. I believe that this was the first of two turning points in the Malachiahite War. The second came as a result of the actions of the sons of Helaman. In both cases, warrior leaders who were men of God and who led men who were skilled and full of faith turned the tide of war. The next episode explains Amron's actions in the Western Theater and will set the stage for the sons of Helaman. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. All one word, War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. Until next time. <laughs>